Welcome to the Sisters Community Church Podcast. In this episode, we continue our Advent series where Pastor Steve Stratus and Pastor Ryan Moffat have a roundtable discussion about worship. Let's listen. Steve, good to see you, man. Good to see you. Yeah. Um, right. We prayed last week for an art show with Jim and you on Friday night. And uh, how many of you guys were available and were a part of that on Friday? Wasn't that, wasn't that a great time? Yeah. How, how did it go for you? And what did it... Did it meet the standards of what you had in your head of how that was going to go? I actually was surprised how many people came. There's about 75 people and people that we didn't know. And a part of it is really how do we share the story and the gospel without having to have four spiritual laws or Romans Road. And for all of us, it becomes an opportunity to invite our friends to cultivate the community. So for those of you that were there, thank you. For those of you that invited people to come, it was a it was a, really a fun night. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, as we um, get ready for next week, where we have two services on Saturday, one on Sunday, uh, before we go to scripture this morning, what are you thinking about? What's in your heart? What have you been praying about, dreaming about for our church, for our community, for these Christmas Eve gatherings and for our Christmas gathering? Yeah, I just... I love the fact that the story of reconciliation, whether it's a Christmas story or a story in terms of us, Christ, continues to be told in our community uh, around the fact that as our churches have come together. I mean, I I got a text yesterday from someone who had been around um, and they said, oh, I just heard about you and Vass coming together. How awesome is that? So the story of reconciliation is continuing to be told. and, And I think that's an attractive thing um, and I think that's uh, something I hope continues to happen. So. Yeah. And just for the church, so you're all aware, we have just some little invitations you can grab on the way out so you can invite your friends, your neighbors, your community, because there's a lot of people. Look, there's a lot of people that aren't going to go to church anywhere. Great. There's a lot of people that are just waiting for that nudge. They're waiting for that grab person to grab them. They're waiting for that invitation so we just encourage you to be thoughtful, prayerful about your sphere of influence. And uh, we got a message of reconciliation. We have a message of hope. We just got done saying, singing the words, chains shall he break for the slave is our brother. In his, in his name, all oppression will cease. And we actually have a, a message that we can share with the community. So be thoughtful and prayerful about that this week. Uh, this, today we're gonna look at this third theme of Advent, which is this idea of worship. We're going to do it out of Luke. And, and why don't you give us a little bit of background of kind of set this up from Luke's gospel as we go into this. Before I do that, I was asking Ryan, what was your favorite Christmas? And, and uh, as a kid, if you remember it, and we were talking about, he, he mentioned something that about hiding in the closet, looking at a present. Uh, I, that was for you only, Steve. Oh, I didn't. Uh, and it was last year. And, then, and I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> So I, so I told him one time that there was a present under the tree when I was probably about eight, and, and I really was, go, it was, I was going crazy. What's in this thing? So I grabbed it and went to the closet and uh, opened it up, and then I rewrapped it and put it back under the tree. The only problem was I rewrapped it in wedding paper and, <laughs> instead of Christmas paper. So everybody knew that I had opened it up and so I was just busted. You're, you're just a bad liar. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I got a, I got a, the original 8-bit Nintendo in 1988, and I knew about it a week before Christmas and had to fake my happiness and my emotion. <laughs> it's the first time I remember being disintegrated in my own chest and having to pretend I was more... And it, it, <laughs> I, I didn't play it like you, though. I didn't unwrap it and plug it in. I mean, yeah. that's a level of deviance. I mean, we'll be praying for you. <laughs> Well, All right, set us so, up here in Luke. So, you know, as we talk about Christmas, um, one of the things, and I think it's seen in Luke chapter 2, it's probably the best story, the one most uh, well-known. But I think it's important for us to recognize, as we talk to people, everybody has a particular view of Christmas. It's a great story. It's a great fable. It's a great myth. But the beauty of what Luke teaches us about Christmas is the fact of Christmas, and I think it's important for us to understand the fact of Christmas because we all understand the fact of heartache, the fact of darkness, the fact of brokenness. So I want to read to you just both the introduction of chapter 1 and the introduction of chapter 2 so that you can see the way that Luke writes, anybody that wanted to punch holes in, in Luke's statement could do so, but because of how Luke wrote it, it was very factual and nobody could argue it. So it goes like this, verse one of chapter one. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know, and get this, the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Chapter 2, he begins in the same way. And in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. When you talk about historicity and the history of this moment, Luke is really being very factual, very much appealing to those eyewitnesses that want to know whether this story is actually true. Mm -hmm. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. Thus, uh, Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. So the fact of Christmas is really important for us because there's a lot of people out there that look at the Bible as just another myth, as just another fable. And in this Christmas season that's become so commercialized and so much a story that revolves around anything but the beauty of the incarnation, it's key to us understand in the same way that the fact of darkness, the fact of heartache, the fact of sin, the fact of life being broken is very real. Luke wants us to know, scripture wants to tell us that the fact of the Christ child is very well known and it is the light that comes into darkness and dispels it. And as we look at some of these stories, we're going to look at a few just interactions. We're going to look at a few vignettes, if you will, in Luke's gospel but I want to say the overall theme that's, that we see as Luke puts a story together in this, what he would say, a detailed account. So you would know the exact certainty. The way he does that is a way that breaks most conventional wisdom. And here's what I mean. When we go to tell a story about, uh, we're both basketball players, so we'll just, we'll just show you how we do this. Let me tell you about my, my best game in high school. Reality is, you know, six points and... 
I had one steal. I had 47 points. And I mean, everyone was cheering my name and they carried me off. That didn't ever happen, right? So we have an ability to actually tell stories that we make ourselves better than we are. That's how we do. Any fishermen out there? (laughs) Enough said. That's not how Luke tells his story. I'm going to pick a mute guy named Zachariah. I'm going to pick a teenage girl. I'm going to pick really, really old people, Simeon and Anna. He's going to take the nobodies. He's going to embed that, bake that into his story. And what we're going to learn through these stories is that actually it's the poverty of spirit that is the great setup for the worship of God. And what we tend to do in our humanity is we tend to basically hedge our lives against any poverty of anything. Poverty of money, poverty of food, poverty. And what Luke does is he just says, nope, I'm putting all these unlikely cast of characters, we're putting them all into Luke one and two. And what we're gonna see is that this response of worship is the result of the tenderized heart. And so it's actually the neediness of each one of these characters that really shows us what this response of worship, it comes from a place, it comes from a source. And so we're gonna look at a few of those stories and a few of those interactions. Let's start with Mary's uh, interaction in in Luke chapter one. And uh, you guys have probably seen this story before. This is Mary's response after she's received this great promise from an angel that she's gonna actually be a part of the redemptive plan of God promised from Genesis 3, Genesis 12 and following. And so she sees this and, and here's her response. And I just wanna look at verses 46 and 47 and make some observations about worship. Mary says this, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And then the rest of her response is this response of God looking at the humble and raising and exalting them and, and humbling the proud and, and bringing them down. But what, what I want you to see in this response of worship is that her soul, something inside of her is magnifying the Lord, but I, but I want you to see that the magnification of God is actually connected to an emotion. An emotion that is really built around, well, built around this feeling of what the Holy Spirit is doing in her life and what God is doing in her life. And it's almost like our initial response would be, are you kidding me? Because the thought of this young girl being impregnated, you're going to have a child and it's the Holy Spirit that's going to come. I mean, the story is bizarre. And yet her response to it is this incredible trust and quiet and recognition that God is doing a new thing. And let's not forget, these were the people of God that had waited for a long time. As we talked about Advent, it was this lament that they had forever and ever, and it seemed impossible. Year after year after year, it just seemed impossible. And all of a sudden, as we've 
read before, that which is impossible with man is very possible with God. And she responds in this sort of praise. And it, it brings you back to actually Exodus 15 in my mind where the Moses led the children of Israel out of uh, slavery the exodus, the deliverance, cross the river, and all of a sudden they break into the celebration of song. It's the song of, of celebration. Yeah. I think it's a little bit, it's more than having a child. It's the fulfillment of a promise that has been in front of them for year after year after year. Could it be now? Yeah. Yeah, and I, what I want you guys to see this morning is that this response of worship actually has internal joy connected to it. And oftentimes what we do is we go, well, it's worship time and it's time I better really, you know, focus on God. And where I, I think Jesus warns us, for instance, in Matthew 15, 8, he says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is what? Far from me. Far from me. And he goes on to say, in vain. Do they worship me? So there is a worship that's, in God's eyes, vain. And so when we talk about this response of worship, what we're actually talking about is the overflow of the heart producing praise, but it's connected to the heart, not disembodied from the heart. And so I was thinking about, you know, what does this picture of, of praise look like? What does this pic- And I was thinking of the cast of characters and how unlikely this was and how their lives were so uh, in ruins and how they were so desperate, right? The desperation is actually the prerequisite of mm. praise. And I was thinking about a movie. Um, did, you, did you happen to see that Disney? And you're out of the Disney days. Never mind. Some of you, um, God bless you. Um, there was a Disney film. Uh, it was called The Rescue. Did you happen to see this film? It was a film about these 12 boys stuck in a cave. A true story. You guys remember this story? It was about, what, five, six years ago? And it gripped the world. You guys remember seeing the updates on that, watching the news every night? It was, it was a story that just brought the whole world together. Well, this film, this documentary, was the story of these 12 boys being rescued. Okay? They were in a cave, and they were back in it so far deep They had to get professional divers. They had the best divers in the world. They had to swim through. Sometimes they had crunching their bodies through. Anyone claustrophobic out here? I didn't like it. I had to get up and move because it was making me squirming. Um, But it was such an unlikely rescue. Yeah. And it was the unlikeliness of the rescue. It was the desperation. And what you saw was a world I could put it it this way, rejoicing with great joy. Mm. Good news, great joy. Mm. And it became a response of praise and worship. But if you don't, as G.K. Chesterton says, the moment that the worst moment for an atheist is when they go to praise and they have no one to thank. And as Christians, we get to say with clarity, God, thank you for what you've done. So this, this first response is this good news of great joy. You know, I have, um, John Piper has a definition of joy that I think is really good. He says, joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world around us. Hmm. And I think uh, when I think about where do you find joy? You know, a question that we might want to all ask ourselves, you know, what brings you the most joy? 
but it's always something that is out there that we connect with. And Piper says it's both in the word, which for many of us, as we open up scripture and we meditate on it and we begin to read and learn, it produces joy, but it's also in the work or the world in which we live. And I don't know, the other day, um, sun was really red, and you go out, and the mountains are there, and you look at creation, this world, and it brings incredible joy. And that joy is spoken of in lots of ways. I mean, Nehemiah talks about it when they're building the walls. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Or Paul talks about it in prison when they're singing, and they're filled with joy. And it's not a moment where many of us would say, this is really a happy time. But the joy is something that supersedes the circumstances or the situation that we find ourselves in because the Holy Spirit and the Word and the work is all at, all at work in our lives. Mm. It's just a way that strengthens us because God knows there's enough sorrow in our world. We pick up a paper or who does that anymore? But um, we watch the news and sometimes who does that anymore? <laughs> but it's sad. And then at the end of the news, you've noticed this, they have a 30-second clip, and they want to celebrate somebody. And you're saying to yourself, why couldn't we have 29 minutes, 30 seconds of that joy, and then you can tell us the bad news afterwards. But for all of us in the world in which we live, this birth of the Christ child, and, and let me say this, it's not the birth of the Christ child that simply brings joy. It's the birth of the race of the people because of the Christ child that brings us joy. And it is even as Jesus said, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. You're his joy. Mm. And that joy becomes something that should motivate us as well because we're the people of God. And that is a joy that goes beyond any expectation or any present we could open. Yeah. So just a a quick... uh formula, if for those of you guys that like formulas, I always think of it this way with worship. The truth of God or the work of God or the word of God, you, you fill in how you want it, plus a sensitive heart. So this is God's part, the truth, the work, the word, that's God's part, plus a sensitive heart equals worship. And so one of the things that I, I think about often, Steve, is in a world that wants to harden our hearts, it really, I mean, you think about the news. It, I mean, it's a numbing experience, right? Thanks, but no thanks. Mm-hmm. How do we, as the people of God, maintain this sensitive heart in a world that wants to harden our heart? What are some strategies, even this week, as we think about Christmas and the joy of, of what God is doing, how do we keep that sensitive heart? Yeah. Well, one person once said, if you're gonna watch the news, in, in the breaks between one bad story to the next, use it as a time of prayer to pray for that story that was just so bad. That will make your prayer life robust. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of material It'll there. give you a lot yeah, to pray about. Yeah, a lot to pray so. about. So yeah, so as we, as we see these things Advent and we're talking about joy and, and as you mentioned, the tender heart, it's another question we need to ask ourselves. What is it that makes your heart tender? What do you do to keep your heart tender before God? Because a tender heart is a pliable heart. It's a heart that can be shaped. It's a heart that can be molded. You know, one of the things the writer of Proverbs says, listen, my son, and if you'll hear my word, keep your heart tender. 
And tender sometimes is actually translated teachable. And so a tender heart is a teachable heart. And as we come before the word and the work and each other, how do we keep our hearts tender? Because we want to bring that to the Lord, that tender heart. So. Amen. Let's go into another little story here. Uh, this is from our scripture reading. And I want to just pick it up here in Luke chapter 2, verse 17 and through 20. And we're going to see two responses that I want to just think about in terms of worship Verse 17, when, when they saw it, they made known all the saying that, that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But the first response I want you to see is verse 19. Mary says, she treasured up all these things and she pondered them in her heart. And the second response is the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So we see with Mary that here's a woman, a young woman, that she's learned the life of contemplation. She's pondering. If I can put it this way, she's thoughtful. She's a journaler. She's observing. She's not letting life just happen without evaluating it. She's thinking about what is happening. And so there's a principle here in worship that I think we just need to ponder a little bit because here's this young woman and she's taking the time and saying, what is God doing? Where is God at work? And I, I'm, I'm gonna quote my, one of my good friends. Uh, he, uh, he's gone through some hard things in his life and he's walked through some massive grief, massive loss. He's walked through some of his own uh, sin and that has really cost him a lot. But I've watched this man become soft and tender in his 50s. And I was asking him one time, I go, well, tell me some of your strategies. How do you do it? He goes, oh man, two things, man, two things. And he was all excited. What's that? He goes, first thing I do in the morning is I make my bed. Why is that? Because if I can like manage my, my bed and my sheets and my bedroom, then I, I, I'm empowered. I can manage what's in front of me. He goes, but the last thing I do before I go to bed as I just write down five gratitudes. He's like, God's always at work in our lives. Oftentimes in my life, I've just missed it. I've not taken the time to, to say, where is God at work in my life? He goes, if anyone's miserable, it's a product of their own ability to write, you have, have them write down five gratitudes. And so what I found in, in my life, as I see this pondering, as I see this wondering, as I see this, observant, contemplative woman, worship is actually catechized and it's, it's, it's climax in our lives when we're paying attention. And so the principle is this, pay attention to your attention. Pay attention to your attention. God's at work actually today in amazing ways. Are you observing? God's at work in your life and in your family in amazing ways. Are you alert to what he's doing? And the principle I see in, for instance, 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says something really, really strong about this idea of formation, internal dialogue. He says, beholding the glory of the Lord, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same glory from one degree to another. And the principle of worship is this, whatever we behold, we become. 
Whatever has your mind, whatever has your attention, and if it's the news, guess who you're going to become? You're going to have the same company lines, the same outrage, the same anger. But if it's the work of God in your life, you know what you're going to become? Soft, tender, contemplative, thoughtful, prayerful. And so that's what I see in this piece with Mary. Yeah, yeah you know, and, and sometimes, I think for all of us, because we live in a world that's so performance-based, there was an enforced humility upon Mary. <clears throat> it wasn't something that necessarily she woke up in the morning and said, I'm going after this. Yeah. And I think for, for me, for I think most people, you talked about it last week, humility, but vulnerability is a scary proposition. Mm. I don't think we want to be vulnerable. I don't think we, we like that kind of humility. And yet, you know, for our children, oftentimes we would say, we're going to teach you uh, enforced humility until you take humility and it becomes voluntary. And I think in our lives, there are things that go on in a broken world that God wants to use to create that enforced humility so that voluntary humility becomes a way of life for us. But the beauty of that is I've talked to lots of people in those moments where vulnerability takes over, there's a newfound freedom if we can get past the fear. Yeah. And when we get past the fear of being vulnerable, of being found out, of being not as wonderful as we pretended to be, now we can be honest with each other and beautifully honest before God. And I think that's the place of freedom and worship and tenderness. And that would be the place I would hope that we'd all be able to get to because God knows we know how to pretend. We spend most of our life pretending, trying to fit into the mold that somebody else expects of us or what we expect of, our, of ourselves to be accepted by others. But this beautiful moment in, in Mary's life, I mean, think about how frightening that would be. Number one, you're a teenager and you're pregnant and you're not married. But you're betrothed to somebody who's going to marry you, who has the right now to stone you because you got impregnated by someone else. Now you got to tell them it's the Holy Spirit that did it. Yeah, right. And then you find yourself in a place where it's not just any child. It's the long-awaited son of David, the Messiah, the one who is going to set Israel free. You talk about an unlikely putting together of a situation, and it produces a joy yeah. that's supernatural. Yeah. yeah. And then with these shepherds, real quick, in verse 20, it says that the shepherds return glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen. And some of the language we've been talking about in First John is objective truth, but we need a subjective experience. So they're praising God based not just on the objective truth, it's that everything that they had yeah. seen and heard and so I would just want to take a couple minutes this morning and say, you know, Steve, in your own life, where have you seen and heard God's redeeming work in your life that causes your heart to sing? How do you, how do you reflect on that? Wow. Um, we didn't rehearse this, and I might be in trouble later. But um, So... In probably the darkest moment, one of the darkest moments in my life as a, as a follower of Christ, as a pastor who had failed, as one who had left the ministry. Um, six months earlier, I had been in Africa preaching to tons of people. And now I'm working in a gas station 
midnight shift cleaning the men's room. Mm-hmm. And it hit me at that moment, um, how did I get here? And I just broke down, sort of funny, at the throne. So yeah. <laughs> the great white throne, yeah. And, and I, started, I started weeping. And I heard God say, however that happened, do you want to leave me now too? Oh my gosh. And in that moment, I heard Peter say, God, where am I going to go? Only you have the words of life. And I came up from that experience recognizing that God wasn't through with me yet. And it would take us more than we have hours to do, but how God used that in my life to own my sin and to demonstrate his grace and faithfulness to me produced a a confidence and a joy and an understanding of grace and compassion that I knew theologically, but I didn't know it experientially. And it changed my world. Yeah, so good. And that brought such, such a new, and from there so many things happened where God kept showing I'm the one that's going to take care of you. Yeah. Here I am. You know, Tim Keller, who's an amazing pastor, speaker, author, says so many good things, and he's now walking through his own cancer journey, right? And been following that from interviews, writings, podcasts, whatever I can get from Tim Keller, I'm, I'm in. And, and one thing he said is, in all of his theological studies, and he's done much more than I'll ever do, He said, the theoretical love of God will not sustain you in your deepest moment. He says, you'll need actual moments where you deeply experience the love of God. And so one thing I would say I'm learning right now about worship is something I was, I'm a big fan of the Bible Project guys and Tim Mackey and you guys, anyone ever listened to that? Yeah. I knew Tim Mackey before he was Tim Mackey. He was 21 years old, hacky sack kicking, skateboarding, riding punk. And uh, he was flipping his Hebrew cards. And anyway, long story, that's a fun story. But one thing Tim was saying recently is in all his theological studies, he reads Hebrew Bible, he prays in Hebrew, does all, you know, amazing guy, amazing intellect. One thing Tim said recently in one of his talks was that he's neglected this experiential part of his discipleship. And one thing Tim's mentioned in this podcast that I was listening to is he's learning every morning to start like this, and he'll physically put his hands out. And he'll start with your name, Lord's Prayer, your name, your kingdom, your will. And he'll, he said sometimes he'll have his hands out for 15 to 20 minutes, and he calls it the prayer of relinquishment. I want to do all these cool things for you, God, with Bible Project. Nope. Nope. I'm relinquishing. And so I think a lot of our experience of the love of God has to move into relinquishing our plan, our will, our way, our wisdom. And we've got to relinquish it. And, and so one thing I've been doing in the last, since I've heard Tim talk about this, not every day, but a lot of days, I'm learning physically to change my posture 
And what I find is when it's hard for me to even put my hands out physically, oftentimes there's something in here I don't want to release spiritually. And so, friends, what we see in these pictures of this life of worship is that it's not a contrived thing where we just try and hype people up. I mean, we're not trying, what we're trying to do on Sunday morning, we're trying to put the truth of God in song together, but we want to sing it with full hearts. And we each have our own redemption story. And it's those, it's those ways that God has worked in our lives experientially that are helpful to move our hearts and the, to move the needle of our hearts to that real yeah. joy. Yeah. Another one of these scenarios is, is the angels at this particular moment. And a verse that we all know well, we sing it, it's verse 14 of chapter two. It says this, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace towards men in whom he is well pleased. And I think when we talk about worship, it begins with that source, glory to God in the highest. That's where it all begins. And the beauty of it is I grew up in a Greek home and went to Greek church when I was young, and we would always say uh, to Dios, and it would be glory to God. But my grandmother once said to me, that word doxa means that's how we worship sometimes. And it was interesting. I did a little Greek study here, and, and, and sometimes this word glory is used worship. Mm-hmm. And so when we begin with that in mind, everything else comes out of that. So he says, uh, the angels say, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. And when we think about God's space and we think about our space, there is this order that God wants us to experience that we call peace. And peace has such a powerful, it's in the Hebrew word shalom. We say shalom and it means peace. But to the Jewish listener, shalom means so much more. It is the interwoven life. When when God um, creates the world, the psalmist says, Psalm 104, that he throws it out like a garment. And when you think about a garment and the beauty of it, if I had a hundred strands of thread, all different colors, and I just threw them on the table, that wouldn't be a garment. But if I wove them all together with different colors and different purpose, I would create something of great beauty, a garment, something that had order and beauty and joy to it. That's what God means when he talks about shalom. And so when sin enters into the picture, it is the unraveling of that garment. It is the unraveling of that order. It is unraveling of that beauty. So when I have a psychological disease where I'm feeling guilt and, and my emotions are out of whack, it's unraveling. When I think about disease, it's physical unraveling. It's when we don't have health anymore. When I think about society, when I don't use my resources to help other people. You know, the Bible says, very interesting when it talks about righteousness and wickedness, the righteous people are those people that use their resources to disadvantage themselves to help the poor. The wicked people are use their resources just for themselves. Mm-hmm. So when there is disintegration, when there is disorder, when, when peace or shalom or the divine order is being unraveled, our world is falling apart. And so when I think about what the peace 
peace on earth, this shalom that God desires, desires because first and foremost, we give glory to God. We recognize that he is the source of all life and only in living in that which God has created. We oftentimes call it boundaries, right? God has created order. God has created boundaries. If I'm on the top of a building and I jump off it, the law of gravitation is going to take effect and I'm going to splat on the ground because I violated God's boundaries. So think of all the ways that we might not experience peace as a result of the disintegration of the garment that God creates. And the angels are saying, we want peace on earth. But then they say, among men in whom God is well pleased. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. So God wants to use his church. God wants to use his people to recreate that order that comes from worship that produces shalom and brings health, both societal health, physical health, psychological health, back to the world in which we live. Because we look out the world now and we don't see peace. Yes, That's why in the beginning we said, Christmas isn't a fable or just a story, just a myth. It's a fact in the same way that we see the factual reality of disintegration in our world. We need Christmas. That's right. Yeah, and in, this, in that passage of the angels, it's the heavenly host is saying this, and the earth is getting peace. And do you see what's happening? He's reuniting heaven and earth, and he's doing it through Jesus. And then Jesus is doing it through the church. And so this is actually both a, a worship passage, but it's also a missions passage. We've got a job to do, right, as the people of God. And so when we think about this life of worship, what, what I, I want to conclude by saying, this isn't like a nice little thing we do in church or, yeah, it's like one of the tenets of discipleship and we also do other, no, like worship is the, the mission of the church. As we behold who he is, we will become individually and corporately more like him. You, whatever you behold, you become. And this worship is not just merely a theological exercise where we mouth some words. It's, it's an affair of the heart. Our, our, our emotions should and ought be stirred up in deep ways when we respond to God in worship. And so I just think of the great Psalms, the prayer book of, of the church. Psalms like, satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love. Taste and see, that's an experience, that the Lord is good. Delight yourself in the Lord. Joy in God is not, a, it's not optional, it's a command. Do it, get happy in God. And so these kinds of things become, the, the, I would say, the fire in the church. So we become worshipers who worship them in spirit, in heart, but also in truth and doctrine. Yeah. yeah. When we think about Christmas, you know, all throughout the world, people celebrate this day, even, even more so than, than Easter. And this becomes a time for all of us to reflect on God was in Christ reconciling the world into himself. So when we think about if you're young and you have a job, your job is not your calling. If you're old and you're retired, retirement is not your calling. Your calling is to be a people of God who help bring back shalom to the world in which we live by giving ourselves both to worship and to the reality of the calling. That is you 
you and I learning how to weave what God has done in our lives into one another's lives. That's why church is so important. You know, when, when people say, I love Jesus, it's church I don't want, or, you know, I'm spiritual, I just don't go to church. Church is an opportunity for us to practice the one another's in ways where we allow for that weaving of the garment to take place, where we come together, we greet one another, we worship, we love on one another, we, we give one another yeast jars so we can make bread. Thank you, Lainey. And uh, <laughs> yeah. so the beauty of who we are as God's people is to be a restorative process of this reconciliation. And the fact of Christmas gives us the joy to do that. Amen. Father, we are so grateful for the reminder that comes through this Christmas season of how you are so willing to enter into our suffering, identify, and bring healing to our lives. And so as we come to the communion table, we recognize that the supreme moment is that moment in which you give your body to be broken and your blood to be shed on that cross. And you call us to reflect on that moment for there is that place where we are reconciled to you. So as we participate in we would find ourselves just reflecting on this story of this young woman who is going to give birth to this Christ child. And we would ask you, God, give birth in us to be different, to be new, to be a people that show love and worship and joy and peace in ways that we never quite understood before. So Father, help your people come to the table new and refreshed in a way that brings you glory and honor. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this encourages you to dive deeper into your relationship with God through prayer, scripture, worship, and community. We hope you can join us on Sunday mornings at 9.30. For more information, go to sisterschurch.com. Be blessed, friends.